Section 3 of Police. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Police by Robert W. Chambers. The Third Eye. Part 1. Although the man's back was turned toward me, I was uncomfortably conscious that he was watching me. How he could possibly be watching me while I stood directly behind him, I did not ask myself. Yet, nevertheless, instinct warned me that I was being inspected. That somehow or another, the man was staring at me, as steadily as though he and I had been face to face, and his faded sea-green eyes were focused upon me. It was an odd sensation which persisted in spite of logic, and of which I could not rid myself. Yet the little waitress did not seem to share it. Perhaps she was not under his glassy inspection, but then, of course, I could not be either. No doubt the nervous tension incident to the expedition was making me super-sensitive and even morbid. Our sailboat rode shallow turquoise-tinted water at anchor, rocking gently just off the snowy coral reef on which we were now camping. The youthful waitress who, for economy's sake, wore her cap, apron, collar and cuffs over her dainty print dress, was seated by the signal fire writing in her diary. Sometimes she thoughtfully touched her pencil point with the tip of her tongue. Sometimes she replenished the fire from a pile of dead mangrove branches heaped up on the coral reef beside her. Whatever she did, she accomplished it gracefully. As for the man, grew. His back remained turned toward us both and he continued, apparently, to scan the horizon for the sail which we all expected. And all the time I could not rid myself of the unpleasant idea that somehow or other he was looking at me, watching attentively the expression of my features and noting my every movement. The smoke of our fire blew wide across leagues of shallow, sparkling water, or, when the wind veered, whirled back into our faces across the reef, curling and eddying among the sand in mangroves like fog drifting. Seated there, near the fire, from time to time, I swept the horizon with my marine glasses. But there was no sign of Kemper. No sail broke the fire sweep of sky and water. Nothing moved out there, save when a wild duck took wing amid the dark raft of its companions, to circle low above the ocean, and settle at random, invisible again except when, at intervals, its white breasts flashed in the sunshine. Meanwhile, the waitress has ceased to write in her diary, and now sat with the closed book on her knees, and her pencil resting against her lips, gazing thoughtfully at the back of Gru's head. It was a ratty head of straight black hair, and looked greasy. The rest of him struck me as equally unkempt and dingy. A youngish man, lean, deeply bitten by the sun of the semi-tropics, to a mahogany hue, and unusually hairy. I don't mind a brawny, hairy man. But the hair on Gru's arm and chest was rusty red, like a chimpanzee's in texture. And sometimes a wildly absurd idea possessed me that the man needed it when he went about in the palm forests without his clothes. But he was only a poor white, a cracker recruited from one of the reefs near Pelican Light, where he lived alone by fishing and selling his fish to the hotels at Heliotrop City. The sailboat was his. He figured as our official guide on this expedition, an expedition which already had begun to worry me a great deal. For it was, perhaps, the wildest goose chase and the most absurdly hopeless enterprise ever undertaken in the interest of science by the Bronx Park authorities. Nothing is more dreaded by scientists than ridicule, 
and it was in spite of this terror of ridicule that i summoned sufficient courage to organize an exploring party and start out in search of something so extraordinary so hitherto unheard of that i had not dared reveal to kemper by letter the object of my quest no i did not care to commit myself to writing just yet i had merely sent kemper a letter to join me on stingray key he telegraphed me from tampa that he would join me at the rendezvous and i started directly from bronx park for heliotrope city arrived there in three days found the waitress all ready to start with me inquired about a guide and discovered the man grew in his hut of pelican light made my bargain with him and set sail for singraiki the most excited and the most nervous young man who ever had dared disaster in the sacred cause of science everything was now at stake my honor reputation career fortune for as chief of the anthropological field survey department of the great bronx park zoological society i was perfectly aware that no scientific reputation can survive ridicule nevertheless the die had been cast the rubicon crossed in a sailboat containing one beach combing cracker one hotel waitress a pile of camping kit and special utensils and myself how was i going to tell kemper how was i going to confess to him that i was staking my reputation as an anthropologist upon a letter or two and a personal interview with a young girl a waitress at the hotel gardenia in heliotrope city i lowered my sea-glasses and glanced sideways at the waitress she was still chewing the end of her pencil reflectively she was a prairie girl one evelyn gray and had been a country school teacher in massachusetts until her health broke florida was what she required but that healing climate was possible to her only if she could find there a self-supporting position also she had nourished an ambition for a postgraduate education with further aspiration to a government appointment and the smithsonian institute all very worthy no doubt in fact particularly commendable because the wages she saved as waitress in a florida hotel during the winter were her only means of support while studying for college examinations during the summer in boston where she lived yet although she was an inmate of massachusetts her face and figure would have ornamented any light opera stage i never looked at her but i thought so and her cuffs and apron merely accentuated the delusion such ankles are seldom seen when the curtain rises after the overturn odd that frivolous thought could flit through an intellect dedicated only to science the man grew had not stirred from his survey of the atlantic ocean he had a somewhat disturbing capacity for remaining motionless like a stealthy and predatory bird which depends on immobility for aggressive and defensive existence the sea wind fluttered his cotton shirt and trousers and the tattered brim of his straw hat and always i felt as though he were watching me out of the back of his ratty head through the raveled straw brim that sagged over his neck the pretty waitress had now chewed the end of her pencil to a satisfactory pulp and she was writing again in her diary very intently so that my cautious touch on her arm seemed to startle her meeting her inquiring eyes i said in a low voice i am not sure why but i don't seem to care very much for that man grew do you she glanced at the water's edge where grew stood immovable his back still turned to us i never liked him 
she said under her breath. Why? I asked cautiously. She merely shrugged her shoulders. She did it gracefully. I said, have you any particular reason for disliking him? He's dirty. He looks dirty. Yet, every day he goes into the sea and swims about. He ought to be clean enough. She thought for a moment. Then, he seems, somehow, to be fundamentally unclean. I don't mean that he doesn't wash himself, but there are certain sorts of animals and birds and other creatures from which one instinctively shrinks, not perhaps because they are materially unclean. I understand, I said. After a silence, I added, well, there's no chance now of sending him back, even if I were inclined to do so. He seems to be familiar with these latitudes. I don't suppose we could find a better man for our purpose, do you? No, he was a sponge fisher once, I believe. Did he tell you so? No, but yesterday when you took the boat and cruised to the south, I sat right in here and keeping up the fire, and I saw Gru climbing about among the mangroves, over the water in a most uncanny way, and two snake birds sat watching him, and they never moved. He didn't seem to see them. His back was toward them, and then, all at once, he leaped backward at them where they sat on a mangrove, and he got one of them by the neck, climbing about among the mangroves above the water. What? The girl nodded. By the neck, she repeated. And down they went into the water. And what do you suppose happened? I can't imagine, said I with a grimace. Well, Groose went under, still clutching the squirming, flapping bird, and he stayed under. Stayed underwater? Yes, longer than any sponge diver I ever heard of. And I was becoming frightened when the bloody bubbles and feathers began to come up. What was he doing underwater? He must have been tearing the bird to pieces. Oh, it was quite unpleasant, I assure you, Mr. Smith. And when he came up and looked at me out of those very vitreous eyes, he resembled something horribly amphibious, and I felt rather sick and dizzy. He's got to stop that sort of thing. I said angrily. Snake birds are harmless, and I won't have him killing them in that barbarous fashion. I've warned him already to let birds alone. I don't know how he catches them or why he kills them, but he seems to have a mania for doing it. I was interrupted by Gruce's soft and rather pleasant voice from the water's edge, announcing a sail on the horizon. He did not turn when speaking. The next moment I made out the sail and focused my glasses on it. It's Professor Kemper, I announced presently. I'm so glad, remarked Evelyn Gray. I don't know why it should have suddenly occurred to me, apropos of nothing, that Billy Kemper was unusually handsome, or why I should have turned and looked at the pretty waitress, except that she was, perhaps, worth gazing upon from a purely non-scientific point of view. In fact, to a man not entirely absorbed in science research and not passionately and irrevocably wedded to his profession, her violet-blue eyes and rather sweet mouth might have proved disturbing. As I was thinking about this, she looked up at me and smiled. It's a good thing, I thought to myself, that I am irrevocably wedded to my profession. And I gazed fixedly across the Atlantic Ocean. End of section 3 Recorded by Isam.